Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Rocket Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're pretty going to be busy for a minute. Armstrong is on the move. Yeah, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. On this July 20th, 1969. It's been more than 50 years since humankind first stepped foot on soil that didn't belong to Earth. Our next challenge is putting boots on Mars, or close to the home, building a space tourism ministry with luxurious ships designed to entertain, like a cruise. But, you know, not on this planet. And when we soar through space, whether it's recreational or that next giant leap, we'll want to raise a glass and toast to the occasion. Because wherever we are, we'll always be humans. I'm Mark Hartzman, and you're listening to a special episode of Weird Historian about beer, wine, and other off-world drinks, featuring Chris Carberry, CEO of Explore Mars, and author of Alcohol in Space, Past, Present, and Future. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being here with me today. I thought we would just start off with a little background. And if you could tell me when and how your fascination with Mars began. I know mine began with a man in the 1920s who was claiming to be in telepathic communication with a Martian woman. And I'm guessing that your start with Mars is probably a little bit different than mine. It's slightly, slightly different. You know, I'd always been interested in space astronomy, but when I was going, you know, through college, I didn't see how I would, you know, what role I could play in space exploration. I was going in, my background was policy and history. And so, you know, I pursued that for a while. But then, um, you know, in the mid-90s, started reading up in space books again, reading various books, including Zubrin's Case for Mars and a number of others, and realized that, that one of the most important things the space community needed, space exploration needed, was people who were actually had expertise in policy and political outreach. We had a good number of talented engineers and scientists, but politics is generally what has derailed our ambitious space plans for the last many decades. So I started volunteering within the space community. And, you know, but quickly started taking over political outreach for many groups. And then eventually it turned into my day job. That's great. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a good way to take your skills and put it to use for for something that helps everybody. Well, your new book is Alcohol in Space, Past, Present and Future. So, you know, alcohol in space is obviously a pretty niche subject for everything that you just sort of talked about that you would be involved in. And yours is the first book on the topic. So, You know, tell me about the drinks that you were having and the company that you were with when you realized that this was a book you had to write. You know, as as you may have read in the book, it kind of was a long-term thing that developed into what would be a book. 
you know, originally within the space community, it's, you know, you'll often after events, after conferences, you'll sit down at a bar and yeah, occasionally you get silly and start talking about whether you can make wine on Mars, what would it taste like, what would you, could you brew beer on the moon, etc. And these are more comical discussions, but I did add, been thinking about doing an article, maybe teaming up with some, you know, other scientist friends and doing, you know, a semi-serious paper on uh, the prospect of wine production on Mars, looking at all the challenges of, you know, with the soil, what would it taste like? But over time started, as I looked more and more into it, I realized that there were dozens and dozens of companies actually working on the prospect of um, manufacturing, producing, you know, consuming alcohol in space, doing it in, you know, within space experiments, as well as um, doing work here on the surface of Earth, trying to figure out some of the big challenges and so that's how it developed. I realized that there was a lot more than anybody really, you know, understood going on. And, um, it might, you know, I might as well write the first book on the topic. And as the book, it's not just the companies and organizations looking at these technologies. It also examines that fascinating history of alcohol consumption in space. And there's been quite a bit, not, not to excess, but quite a few occasions, which I'll get into in a second, but also looking at why, you know, kind of uh, cultural elements, because alcohol has been a pivotal uh, role, had played a pivotal role in civilization since before written records. It has literally uh, gone hand in hand with the development of civilization. Many scientists believe that Alcohol played a larger role in the development of early agriculture than actually the need for food. So, you know, it's also been dealt with in, you know, science fiction extensively. And then, of course, in the book, I also look at enabling technologies, agriculture and things like that. And so when, as I looked at the full picture, I realized it. it's just all encompassing. All the things you need to manufacture alcohol in space are the same things you need to um, sustain humanity in space. So there's a lot of interesting uh, overlaps here that just connected a lot of dots within the space community and well beyond the space community. Yeah, I, you know, working on the big book of Mars, I knew of a little bit of like some of the developments that were going on with like, you know, Georgia trying to, the country of Georgia trying to create wine for Mars and some of these other efforts. But your book has so many amazing stories in it. And like you said, a lot of the stuff that was going on, going back decades, um, especially with the Russians. So when you first began, you know, kind of researching all those stories, uh, there were so many. I mean, did you find yourself surprised by how many there actually were and all the experiments that were already going on? And what of those surprised you the most? I was surprised. And, you know, and you, you kind of expect the smaller ones, whether it be college groups or small brewers or something, you know, try to do something crazy like that. But what surprised me was the number and the growing number of large alcohol manufacturers. Yeah, Budweiser, yeah, that Budweiser back in 2017, they announced um, at North by Northwest in Austin, they wanted to be the first beer, beer manufacturer on Mars. And they had a star-studded um, cast, <laughs> you know, panel and we thought, of course, you thought it was a PR stunt. But shortly thereafter, they started spending real money on doing these barley experiments. So far, they've sent four barley experiments. And one of the wonderful things about this is that um, 
it's not just beneficial for people who might want a beer in space or whiskey in space sometime in the future. By investing real money, doing real science regarding barley in space, they're investing in agriculture. So this is, an, of course, an, an enabling technology for humans, you know, humans to be able to live permanently in space. So it, it's great when companies like this can engage in not only the benefit of their own product, but also make direct investment in the future of space exploration and settlement. The other companies like Suntory, the Japanese whiskey maker, still has a, a whiskey aging experiment up there. They're a huge company. They're like Maison Mum, the champagne company. Um you know, has, well, haven't sent up anything in space. They've been manufacturing, trying to create the right version of their wine, the right bottle and the right glass in which that people consume it in microgravity. So when people are up on space hotels, they can consume um, their product more authentically and boost the what they call the conviviality of drinking their, their product in space. So that's kind of what surprised me. The the growing interest with mainstream companies and, and that growing amount of investment, just that not only do they see maybe that they can play a role in the future, but they also see the benefits they might play with their product and not just PR, but what what sort of lessons can they learn in the space environment that could give them an edge here on Earth? I mean, create something possibly new. Yeah, you know, it's nice to think that this isn't just a PR stunt because it it has that feeling for sure, like you said at first pass. Oh, it's just a big ad campaign for Budweiser talking about brewing on Mars. But you know, one of the the great things about space exploration is, you know, it's always benefited life on Earth in so many ways, right? Like everything we do to study space and how we can survive in space has helped us live here. And you mentioned in your book, you know, some studies by Robert Zubrin about Mars um, potentially aiding small breweries here on Earth. Do you know, has any of that happened yet? And, and might the efforts of other companies improve their products just here to be consumed at home? Well, it has. And I do mention a number of them in the book. You know, there, I'm sure there are a lot more. With Zubrin, it's kind of recollecting the CO2 um, from, you know, the fermentation process. You know, and then being, of course, you need CO2 later in the process with beer. So reutilizing that, which is, you know, usually the small brewers actually have to purchase, even though they let all the CO2 go off in the atmosphere, there wasn't an efficient way of collecting it unless you had the big apparatus the huge breweries had. But there are other ones like, um, as I mentioned, the um, these Trappist monks uh, were utilizing technology that the European Space Agency um, produced for brewing beer. And even, you know, with um, climate systems up on ISS, you know, helped uh, create better um, control for things like mold reduction. So you can have better air purification within wine cellars. And there's a big argument back and forth on that because some people argue that you want, you need that mold within the wine cellars. But that's in separate, that's an argument for another day. So, but there are a number of these things, but of course with space exploration, uh, targeted um, agriculture is certainly one of them. The wine industry has made use of satellites and other forms of remote sensing quite a bit. But I only see this growing and growing over time as these actual in-space experiments start to advance. And I think we will see a lot more products down on here on Earth, you know, side benefits or direct benefits 
you know, that they were intending, you know, from their experiments. So we'll see. It's still very, very early on, but we've already seen direct impact on the alcohol industry. Oh, that's great. Now, assuming that this all works out, you know, we're drinking on, whether it's on the ISS or uh, on the moon or on spacecraft on the way to Mars, wherever it may be, have they been figuring out like what the, how the difference of uh, effects it might have on you, like drinking alcohol, how might that affect you differently with the lower gravity level? Are we going to get drunk faster? We don't know. (laughs) This is one of the big mysteries. Um, While we know that people have consumed alcohol in space, um, consumption of alcohol in space is officially prohibited. So no, no drinking has officially happened in space. So therefore, no studies have been conducted to um, determine how humans metabolize alcohol in microgravity, and certainly not in other gravities, because we haven't, we don't have access to that, except you know, with short little parabola flights on zero g flights. But that's not really enough to really understand, you know, how humans metabolize alcohol in various gravities. So we assume that um, it's there's not a huge difference because we know that. Cosmonauts and astronauts have consumed alcohol. But once again, it's all anecdotal tales. And as I mentioned earlier, it's never been, you know, even though people have these assumptions about the Russians or others, you know, getting drunk in space, that does not happen, or at least that I heard of. I didn't find any examples of getting inebriated in space. It's usually done in small amounts, shots once in a while at social gatherings. You know, you, you bond, the crews bond together. So, as such, even if they were studying it, it would be hard to determine how efficiently humans metabolize alcohol when they're having such small amounts. Right. So far, it's all been celebratory sips, yeah. I suppose, right? As far as I have heard, you know, it's, you know, and I've talked to a number of people, some off the record, and I haven't heard of any cases with anybody getting inebriated. <laughs> Well, I was I was uh, pretty amazed at how many astronauts you were able to speak with, and I imagine that talking to astronauts about this topic was probably a nice change of pace for them as far as interviews go. I'm sure they get asked, asked you know, similar questions all the time. Were they excited to share these different kinds of stories for once? Were they pretty open about everything, or did you have to sort of pull it out? Depend who you talk to. Some people I was surprised, you know. Um, you know, not everybody, and obviously nobody who is currently working for NASA would do it. Um, but, um, you know, I was surprised, you know, at the number of people, astronauts, particularly like people like John Grunsfeld and others. I've known John for years. I wasn't sure if he would speak about it, you know, and he was very rational about it that, you know, obviously you don't want, you want to control it. You didn't be a bad thing, you know, if people got impaired while in space, but, you know, conceded if you're taking a long voyage to Mars, you know, having some access to alcohol, it's probably not a bad thing for basic um, psychology, keeping, you know, the crew sane, bonding with the crew, kind of like on ISS. And he, he mentioned some good examples that it's not as though astronauts aren't allowed to consume things that could impair them. Uh, they regularly are, there's sleep medication that's approved, which is known to impact different people dramatically different depending on your body mass, you know, your gender, etc. Some of these sleep medications really can impair people quite a bit depending on the dosage. So, 
you know, he mentioned that often these medications probably have a greater impact than the small amounts of alcohol that have been consumed. So it's, you know, you have to look at it all. And obviously you have to put precautions into place. But like I mentioned in the example of the French Navy, you know, who will have bars on their ships, it's it's tightly regulated. It's not as though they're you know, toasting each other on duty. They are able to have, I believe it's like one one drink a day or something like that. I can't remember the exact amount, but and they they monitor it. That's not difficult, you know, particularly in a military ship, to be able to control access and the amount people consume. So you could probably you could put that into place as well fairly easily. You know, eventually when private citizens go up and more regularity, the space tourism, space settlement, you know, obviously alcohol will follow. You're not going to be able to control it as much, but that's that's civilization. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine with space tourism, they won't. Uh, the tourists won't be responsible for the safe uh, control of the vehicle, <laughs> spacecraft, right? So, I guess they would be free to to, to do what they want. Well, yeah, and that, that's a critical part here. Right now, you know, astronauts up on ISS are essentially on duty twenty four hours a day. Right. So you can't. You know, moving forward, you can't expect everybody <laughs> going forward to be on duty 24 hours a day and be always responsible for the lives of everybody around you, I mean, within reason, you know. And so when you have tourism or people settling, there are going to be a lot of people who are not, you know. They will have ordinary or semi-ordinary jobs. They'll be in space, but, you know, they will clock out. They're not going to be responsible for the lives of everybody around them, at least all the time, so they will need to unwind. So this is just part of civilization and um, the way society will progress. So, I, I, and I think it's a good thing, but, you know, and there are going to be some bad elements to it, dark sides of it, like there are with anybody, with anything or anybody drinking alcohol, you know, you're going to have, you know, there's going to be abuse of it at times, and maybe we can find ways to offset that as we're pondering uh, the rules in space. But, you know, once again, this is just part of civilization, and you just have to assume it's going to happen and plan for it. And this is one of the issues, you know, the problems, while I don't have necessarily an issue with um, officially prohibiting alcohol in space in our current circumstance, it does actually, in having not having the ability to conduct these experiments about um, metabolizing alcohol and things like that, it's. I don't necessarily agree with that. It must be a way of doing it, but it's probably going to take um, private sector to do these studies. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, I also, you know, I wonder. You talked about potentially people abusing alcohol in space. I can certainly envision space tourists, you know, having a few too many just because of the excitement of it all, and that's what they'd be doing on Earth. But uh, the problem is, I suppose, if they get sick, the results, you know, with microgravity could be a little bit uh, bit gross. (laughs) I guess that'll be something to deal with. Yes, no, it certainly would. And that'll be an issue, you know. It's not just the regular issues. There are other issues that have to be dealt with, like, you know, how the body reacts beyond the metabolizing of alcohol, but just reacts as you're drinking these beverages in microgravity. And of course, as I mentioned in the book, there are other issues with various types of alcohol, the carbonated variety as well, that um, yeah, carbonation doesn't work the same way in microgravity as it does on Earth, you know, because the carbonation, the gas on Earth, as we all know, rises to the top of the glass, disperses into the atmosphere, but in microgravity, it doesn't. It goes to the center of the drink, 
and into a ball and starts expanding and does that in your stomach also. And so it creates stomach cramps and wet burps. But this is also another reason why some of these alcohol companies are looking at that. Can they can they figure out a balance between carbonation, taste? Yeah, carbonation and taste, essentially. So you're not going to make your consumers, well, sick, <laughs> you know, but it also tastes, you know, like beer or tastes like champagne, not like just basically beer flavored tea or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be an interesting challenge. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, first of all, it'll be exciting just to be able to have a chance to, to try something in space, right? Like that's just the idea of being able to go up there and have an opportunity to have a drink is going to be incredible. One thing I loved about the early part of your book was you talked a lot about pop culture in science fiction and kind of gave examples of alcohol within science fiction. And of course, science fiction always finds a way into becoming just, you know, straight science. Um, so you mentioned, you know, Star Trek, of course, Star Wars with the Cantina Bar and uh, you mentioned some short stories, but did you end up finding a lot more than you ever expected? I mean, similar question before about finding so many real examples, but did you expect to find so many in science fiction? I didn't really have any assumptions. I assumed it would be there, and it is. It's ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. I think it's one of these things. It's not like some great speculation by science fiction writers. I think it's just an assumption. I think it's one of these things when you're creating a scene that things you can assume are going to be so in the future. You know, human civilization will change in some ways, but other parts of it will not. And so I think every one of these science fiction writers assumes this is going to be the case moving forward. Why wouldn't it be? It's been the case for 10,000 years. It's not going to just suddenly stop when we go into space. I mean, even as far back as I mentioned with Jules Verne and H.G. Uh, Wells, they, you know, with Jules Verne on, you know, and his uh, story about going to the moon, they, they bring wine, they bring grapevines, rootstocks, and, you know, hypothesizing about growing grapevines on the moon, which is uh, actually, as far as I know, the first time in human history that I could find that anybody has speculated about space agriculture. And, you know, um, while H.G. Wells didn't actually bring any beer along, <laughs> um, the crew does long for beer, and, and, and then they eventually get stoned on lunar mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so going from science fiction to real science, I mean, we're, we're making obviously a lot of good progress. What do you think, based on your knowledge of uh, our efforts to get to Mars and the efforts by these alcohol companies, when do you think we might be toasting on the surface of Mars? Toasting, you know, depending on what you mean by toasting. Toasting with indigenous alcohol, that's a separate question. I expect there'll be alcohol smuggled fairly early on, maybe not the first one. They're probably going to be obsessive compulsive, but you never know. But, you know, the initial alcohol will be smuggled or transported depending on the circumstances. But I think kind of like that, that story about, you know, one of the early missions of Mars when they were looking for life on Mars, all the beer on Mars, you know, they brought along um, yeast. It had the other um, ingredients and they you know, created a small amount of their own brew. And I think that's highly likely. Like with, um, on in Biosphere 2, when I interviewed um, Tabor McCallum, one of the crew members of the first, you know, first uh, crew members of Biosphere 2, you know, even there, they were, 
made several attempts of uh, brewing alcohol as they were staying in their environment for such a long period of time. And they finally succeeded in making a really apparently not very good tasting, but it was still satisfying banana wine. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Yeah, apparently it tasted like crap, but it was still <laughs> it's still good to have a drink. Speaking of, of crap. You, you mentioned the uh, the ship potatoes from The Martian, from Andy Weir's The Martian, and uh, the difficulties of producing alcohol uh, with with potatoes growing on Mars. But but you do talk about a lot of the different kinds of agriculture that could happen on Mars. So there could be you know indigenous uh, alcohol grown, correct? Yeah, no, I think this will be interesting. I think this is where the real innovation and where new varieties of alcohol the alcoholic beverages might arise. Because what will be the crop? that we use. You know, of course, on Earth, we have a very small number of crops that are actually used for alcohol production. We've, you know, we've been using them for centuries. We know which ones work really well. And while people will experiment with other ones, it's not as though that we have a huge market for algae wine or, you know, alcoholic beverages made out of lettuce or other things. Generally, as long as you have biomass, you can, and you can extract the sugars, you can create an alcoholic beverage. And so what will be the ideal crop on Mars that to not only that you can build, you can um, grow it plentifully, but also is can easily be made into, turned into alcohol. And so that'll be interesting. And it probably, particularly at the beginning, it's in what you have in excess of that you're not actually having to consume. And so it may, it'll be interesting. So you might actually find that in that environment, with that soil, um, also with one-third gravity, it might be an entirely different sort of crop, and the, the gravitational effects and the atmospheric effects might end up with the creation of an entirely new category of alcohol that can only be manufactured on Mars or only be manufactured on the moon. So that's that's one of the interesting things that could develop because you're putting you're going to be developing these products in completely, literally alien environments. And we know that you know, alcohol production and crops rely so much on the environment in which they're in. And so you're going to be changing gravity, you're going to be changing the atmosphere conditions and um, as well as possibly the crops. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating to see what that might be like. I love this idea, too, that no matter where we go, whether it's the moon or Mars or you know wherever else we may end up off world, we're still going to be human wherever we go, right? No, I certainly agree. I, I'd be shocked if you told me in a hundred years we were all teetotalers on Mars. Or, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I'm sure they're probably like if you use example of the um, settlement of the New World. Yeah, yeah, you might have particular groups that don't drink, you know, for religious or other reasons, and other groups that don't do this, that, or the other thing because of you know various cultural issues. But I, I, I'm assuming it'll probably look very similar to Earth and, you know, different cultures. And, and of course, new cultures will develop as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we'll do what we do just in a different place. And like you said, evolve from there. It's exciting. I, I hope these things happen within the next, you know, 15, 20 years or so just to, to be able to witness it and, and ideally take part in it in some way. That would be 
Incredible. Well, I, I think, you know, 15 or 20 years, you're going to be able to see, assuming the commercial space really advances like it looks like it's, it is beginning to do now, I think you will see the initial stages. Of, I, I, I'm almost certain you're going to have see people, you know, in commercially private sector having you know, people consuming alcohol more openly in space. You know, if you're spending $200,000 or more to go up to – you know, to space, you know, we'll assume it's when you start going orbital. I mean, I can't imagine it's going to be worthwhile to have a drink when you're just doing one of these 15-minute suborbital flights. But when you're spending a little more time, that's what, or when you have space hotels, that's when it's going to happen. But, of course, that'll be originally or start off on with alcohol that is brought up from Earth. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes for indigenous alcohol. And, of course, that initial indigenous alcohol, think of what you are going to be able to ask for it on the surface of Earth. You have first few bottles of um, wine or whiskey or beer brewed in space. <laughs> you know, that, that's, you, you're going to be able to offer that for almost any price. <laughs> I'm sure people will pay quite a premium for that. That's for sure. Um, well, this is exciting. Thanks for chatting with me about this. And it's uh, it's an exciting future. And like you said, alcohol is just a part of, of civilization and humanity. And that's certainly not going to change. So it's an exciting future. And uh, it'll be good to have, you know, a nice drink to go along with that. Absolutely. Well, and thanks for having me on. <laughs> thanks so much, Chris. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Chris Carberry, for talking about space and the need for a drink when we get there. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartzman. This episode features clips from NASA and Walter Cronkite reporting on CBS, as well as music from John Williams. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland, and this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. For their strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at weirdhistorian on Instagram. And if you want to find out more about space booze, pick up Chris's book, Alcohol in Space, published by McFarland Books. Lastly, if you like this podcast, tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. Until next time, have a weird day.